1: Judgment is nigh, for the Belschnickel is I.
0: Yes, he is
1: finally nigh. I am nigh! Every year, my grandfather would dress up as Belschnickel at Christmas. He was okay at it. I am great. You know how they say some people were born to be bad? Well, I was born to be Belschnickel. <laughs> oh, Berschnickle has traveled from distant lands to discover how all the boys and the girls have been behaving this last year. <laughs> oh, too much droodle. So he's kind of like Santa, except dirty and worse. No, much better. No one fears Santa the way they fear Berschnickle. Wow. it's my favorite part of Christmas, the authority. And the fear. Yes,
2: exactly. Come on, Dwight, you're making this up.
0: No. Oh. This is a real thing. Belschnickel is a crotchety, fur-clad gift-giver related to other companions of St. Nicholas in the folklore of southwestern Germany. Oh, yes,
1: wow. of course. Okay, great.
0: Seriously, you guys?
1: Now you believe in Dwight's traditions when some Democrat looks it up on Wikipedia?
0: His partner, Schwate Pete, or Black Peter, a slave boy, often portrayed in colorful pantaloons and blackface.
1: Uh-uh. No, Dwight. No. Oh, come on. We don't blindly stick to every outmoded aspect of our traditions. Take a bowl and pass it down. Thank you, Dwight. These are nice. No, these are gift bowls. When you receive a gift, it will go in the bowl, but the bowls must be returned at the end. They're a set. Now, hold your bowls forward. The bell will decide if you are impish or admirable. Oh, it's like, naughty or nice. No, impish or admirable. Quick question. Do you just decide who gets what in the moment, or did you make a list? I decided earlier. Oh, nice. Did you check that list? Of course I checked it. But more than once? Because you could have made a mistake. checked it more than once. Okay, so you made a list, you checked it twice, and now you're going to find out who's... sure admirable. Oh, damn. Phyllis fans! Cheer or fear? nickel is here. I judge your year... as... admirable. There you are. Hmm, what are these? It's a set of rubber gaskets for canning jars. I'd rather have the bowl. You can't have the bowl! Oscar Martinez, cheer or fear? Belsnickel is here. I judge your year It's impish. Ow! You hit people with that thing? No, I'm carrying around the stick in order to look cool. For the kinder. Ooh. Mm. I have to go to Philly. But this was amazing. Okay? But you work tomorrow. Yeah, I know. I just like to settle in and get a good night's sleep. But we were going to break the pig rib. Oh. Remember? That's right. No matter. Belschnickel cares not about this. Off with you. Perfect. Merry Christmas, everybody. Wait, 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 wait. Don't you want to know your present? You know what? Yeah, have at it. Jim it! Cheer or fear? <laughs> Belschnickel is here. I judge your her year as impish. Oh! Are you nuts? I judge you impish! Ow! Ow! Okay, that is three. And you didn't hit anybody that hard. They're not abandoning the party. Just, hey! All right. That's
2: enough. I'm done. Okay?
3: Hello. Hello, L- Linda.
2: Yes,
3: yeah, Clint. Hello. I didn't have my microphone on. Very professional of me. How are you this morning?
2: I am fresh as a daisy. How about you?
3: I'm working on it. <laughs> it's my busy time. It's my busy time of year, so.
2: You haven't been in the studio since Saturday night, have you?
3: Uh, I've gotten to get away from here for a little bit. It's just been crazy. We've got a guy in Hong Kong right now that I'm taking over for. And oh. we've had a guy that got sick this week. So I just basically have to come in and make sure that the train stays on the tracks, you know?
4: Mm-hmm. Yep.
3: But I really, I mean, that just goes to show you how crazy I was the other day. That, I mean, I've been doing this. For almost 20 years, generally I would speak in Eastern time because it's just the way that we would do. I did morning radio in Dallas for so long that I just spoke in Eastern time. And I mean, that made absolutely no sense that I was like, yeah, we can do that then.
2: Well, I've, I messed up an interview once because it was coming from the West Coast, but I translated the wrong way that I thought it was going to happen in the morning, but then, no, it was supposed to happen at school pickup time, and I said, there's no way I can do that. And um, so I just, so that's why I'm just going to say Eastern time because I can't figure it out.
3: <laughs> but that's cool, though. See, your Eastern time, it should all work out. So you have little ones?
2: Um, No, my littlest is 11.
3: 11.
2: Well, so that's as little as it gets, yes.
3: You have one? Just one?
2: No, I have two. I have a 25-year-old.
3: Get out! You do not have a 25-year-old.
2: Yeah, I do have a 25-year-old. You're
3: not old enough to have a 25-year-old.
2: See, I never know how to take that. People say that. Well, now now it makes me feel good, but when I was younger and she was younger, like, are you saying she couldn't be mine or are you saying she shouldn't be mine? (laughs) twenty two when I had her, so um, yes, I was the young mother and now I'm the old mother.
3: Well, you do not look like an old mother.
2: Oh, well that, let's see, you're probably looking at the author photo from three years ago, so
3: three years ago is a snap of a finger though.
2: Yeah, it is. It is. So fast. And it's nice that it's nice to still get interviews for a book that's three years old.
3: That's I know. Sad. I wouldn't I didn't get into your book until last year and I ha- actually had conversations with Kat about having you on last year and we just it just got crazy.
2: Did you get the book from Kat or did you hear about it somewhere else?
3: Yeah, she is the one that tipped me off to you. She knows what I like. I think she sent me... Well, I know she sent me Witches and Old Magic at the same time. Mm -hmm. But I feel like it was already, it may have been like mid-November or already December when I got it. And I'm not one of those kind of people that likes to get a book and just look at the questions. Oh, so you
2: actually read the book. Right. That's nice.
3: In fact, if you saw, I have... Um, I do a couple of different things I didn't really want to write up on your book So I have post-it notes all throughout your book And the cover's all bent back And it's, it's well worn
2: Yeah, post, post a worn, beaten up copy on your Facebook page
3: I will I will I posted a picture of just the nice cover But I will take a picture of how there's I mean, there's stuff sticking out of every hole here
2: Oh, that's good when yeah. my first book came out, I gave a lot of copies away, like to friends. I gave a copy to my super because he likes—he had a teenage daughter and he likes fantasy fiction. So I gave him a copy. And I later asked, well, how'd your daughter like it? He said, oh, no. No, no. It's up on the shelf. She's not allowed to touch it. I want to keep it nice. What? That's because I, mean, I thought this girl would... Would read it because she was a slightly gothic teen, she would read it, she would tell her friends about it and and you know it would just snowball from there but but you know, I've seen this these books just in Christine on people's shelves. <laughs> I'm told that my books are good to bring to the bathroom because you can pick them up just anywhere and and read a little bit and then put them away again.
3: I can see I love the fact that this book in particular. I love how it goes from story and history into craft, and in fact, I have a four-year-old daughter Yeah, who is my, she is my doppelganger in the female form, and we're actually going to do some crafts from your book today.
2: Oh, okay.
3: Yeah, we've got all day together, um, just the two of us, and... I'm really excited about it. I'm gonna do uh gonna do the little like the elf Sun and mm-hmm. we're just gonna head over to Michaels and I'm gonna grab a bunch of stuff and
2: oh, you've got Michaels out there too?
3: Oh yes, oh yes, we've
2: got Michaels, but when I lived in Santa Fe, it was Ben Franklin, really yeah when I because I'm from New Jersey and New Jersey, we had Treasure Island, and then when I went to Santa Fe to study art. I was like, oh, Treasure Island in New Mexico is Ben Franklin. I don't know if they still have Ben Franklin stores.
3: So where did you where did you go to school in Santa Fe?
2: Um, College of Santa Fe.
3: The College of?
2: It's just called the College of Santa Fe and we shared a campus with the Institute of American Indian Arts. Okay. And it was on St. Michael's Drive. And I think everything, I think both campuses have moved since then.
3: How did you like New Mexico?
2: Um, Loved it at first. Loved it enough to have my first daughter there. Yeah? (laughs) Now I have kind of mixed feelings about it. I haven't been back, let's see, last time I was back. When the 11-year-old was three. So, yeah, I haven't been back for eight years.
3: You know, one of the biggest names in fantasy fiction at the moment resides in New Mexico.
2: Is that George? Yeah. Yes, and I knew that. I knew that when I lived in New Mexico. And that's why I tried to read the first book of Game of Thrones three times. Three times I tried to read it. And three times I couldn't get past the first chapter.
3: Yeah, it took me...
2: Found it on the shelf. Then second when it was getting big. Then third when I bought the full set for my older daughter Ursula, so she was totally into it and just just couldn't
3: get couldn't get through it. No. Well, I've made it through. I'm not all the way caught up or anything, but I really enjoyed I really enjoyed the first two, but it did take me a while to get through. Some of the beginning. And honestly, um, I, I'm more fascinated by his house because of what I read about him having that little tower that he goes up into to write. Oh, really? Oh,
2: he's got a tower.
3: Yeah, that has like a little windy staircase. And up there, it's apparently just like his desk, bookcases. He has uh, little little miniatures from his books that... Fans have made or so it apparently is just like it's the perfect nerdy man cave for him but it's up in a tower I just love that
2: Uh I'm so surprised I haven't tried to find it on Big Bang Theory that seems like kind of uh you know gate that they would crash
3: right exactly
2: it there
3: exactly well I wanted to say happy St. Lucy's Eve
2: Oh my gosh! It is, isn't it? It is. Bad me! I didn't realize. Realize I should have been looking at my own calendar of <laughs> you know calendar in the back of the book. It but it, you know it's hard to forget because nobody else is doing it. You know. Right. When it's a holiday that only you know about, it's it can be when very few. And also, I'm still caught up in the whole black peter controversy have you heard about that
3: well i can see where it would be coming from and i read some of your i read your comments about it obviously in the talking points i tend to agree with what you said what's crazy is i've, I've actually been familiar with black peter for a long time because i'm a grateful dead fan and they have a song called black peter
2: oh i didn't know that
3: they do but what really sparked my interest in European Christmas, I went to school in London and studied art and theater and what have you. What but, do you? uh you Yeah, it was awesome. But I'm a big fan of the Rick Steves European Christmas special.
2: I own it. I bought it from my parents and they're like, well, that's nice. So I took it back and we watch it every year.
3: It is so great. It's on my DVR right now. It gets recorded every year. And what's funny is when my parents first got like an HD television, you know, a real big plasma screen HD television. uh, It was right before Christmas that my dad got it for himself, you know. And the first Christmas at my home, which my parents have lived in the same place my entire life that was on and it was like sparkling, you know. Yeah. The sparkling HDness of it. But that is really what introduced me to a lot of
2: Yeah, that's a good one. The
3: themes in your book.
2: It's a good one. it's worth even but listening to his bad pronunciation of all his words. Because he never he's never like uh advertised himself as a linguist. But yeah, that's a good, and uh, this is the first year that I will, I got, my boss got me a new TV in April. I was, we we still had the one, you know, that's like the curved glass screen and and bumped out the back.
3: Oh, really? You still had a box TV?
2: Had a box TV. And now we, this is the first time that we have a somewhat larger flat screen, so it's going to look really good this year.
3: It is. I'm telling you, it's, it's really impressive the snowflakes they feel like you're in there they feel like it's happening in your home what's really interesting about old Rick Steves is this uh our podcast is actually labeled as a travel podcast even though we do we do uh legend tripping is kind of our thing you know Mm -hmm. and there was a time this summer when we were We jumped ahead of Rick Steves' podcast on the podcast charts. And I was like, this is the greatest day of my life. (laughs) (laughs) No, he has like 30, but we jumped over all of them.
2: Wow. What legend do you think was it that put you over the top?
3: Well, it was this summer and we were in Galveston. And a broadcast for a week from the Galvez Hotel on Galveston Island which is um a big fancy old hotel that they built right after the hurricane in 1900 and uh the mob owned it and that was really the week that it just like it, it just exploded
2: so it's got to be haunted right
3: oh yes 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 yeah we did some live live broadcasts live facebook videos it was crazy it was a lot of fun it's one of my favorite places to go period but this was one of the first times that we just took it to the next level and galveston has a huge christmas tradition and i'm kind of angry that i'm not down there hadn't made time to go down there already oh what do they do they big lights obviously but it's kind of the island theme not in a weird way like not like everybody's dressed up like jimmy buffett but <laughs> uh there's a really there's a victorian tie into the town so they have the dickens thing going on oh, okay. it's cool you know i mean it's a touristy place so they've gone out of their way to kind of try to own a few of those and it's such a gorgeous building that the way that they decorate it and everything—it's it's fabulous. But I think that this—I really—I'm uh, a big fan of Christmas, right? And the thing that I loved about um, learning about the European traditions and then learning—you know—they're much older than that. Just the idea of the idea of being in London. At Christmas time, is always it's real romantic, you know. Growing up, reading Dickens and everything, and to his house. What's that?
2: Have you been to his house? Because I think you can go in his house at, in London at Christmas time, can't you? probably any time. But I think they do a big Christmas tour.
3: I and randomly wandered into so many Dickens festivals while time. I was there, but I didn't <laughs> go into his actual house. But it I grew up with the George C. Scott Christmas Carol,
2: Mhm-,
3: which was terrifying to me as a child.
2: My sister was a fan of the Alister Sims
3: one. oh, I'm familiar with that one as well, yeah, they really captured the grittiness with George C. Scott, and again, that was just the one you know that was the one that I got, and I loved it. And now I've I pretty much traced down any kind of, any version of it that I can find. But...
2: I'm a goo, right?
3: <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I was reading the Disney story with Sadie, my daughter, the other night. And we actually had this breakthrough where she was getting the reason. She was like, I don't understand what's happening. You know, when the ghost of Christmas past takes her and the ghost of Christmas past is, of course, Jiminy Cricket Mm
4: -hmm.
3: in the book. And he takes him and he's looking through the through the window and she's like, what's happening here?
2: (laughs) It's a lot to take in.
3: It is. And but I was impressed with the fact that instead of just listening to me ramble on, she was like, hold up, explain to me. What does this mean? Why is he looking through the window at younger him? She was like, Oh, it's happening in his mind. I was like, Yeah, sort of. <laughs> it's pretty close.
2: Is it a dream? Well, you know which one? Um it was some some like official Dickensian society or so in London was asked what movie version do you think is most true to the spirit of the book? And do you know which one they picked? No the muppet christmas carol.
3: Really? That Yes. That was actually going to be my guess. And that one is fantastic.
2: It's a good that's when I watched it with my older daughter. We had to turn it off when the ghost of christmas future appeared. Yeah. She says like no, no more. Yeah. She watches scary things, but uh that was too scary for her at the time she was probably like 6.
3: Yeah, it really like hits the fan when he's first going to the door and he sees Marley in the knocker mm-hmm. and just dealing with Marley is enough. But then when you get to the ghost of Christmas present and he opens his robe and the two kids are there.
2: Did I say future? Yeah, I said, wait, no, future. Yeah, I was thinking future. Oh, the present. Yeah, that's what the, the little shriveled up kid. Is.
3: Yeah, that's terrifying.
2: But, you know, he wrote that was not the only Christmas story he wrote. He used to write one every year. Right. Yeah, because that was was when you wrote scary stories.
3: And I was, while I was kind of, this evening, while I was half-assed producing the show that I was working on and really getting ready for talking to you, I was looking up some of the more famous or best Christmas stories for the telling of Christmas Eve. And I thought this was fascinating. I was reading about how they were describing that in Victorian culture, really Christmas Eve was the only time to tell ghost stories. That was the only time that it was appropriate. So basically there was a theme that every, every ghost story that's worth its salt happens on Christmas Eve or has something to do with Christmas because that was such a, tradition because you have so many people around and there would be games that would be played and then there would be the telling of stories. It was really cool. I a few a lot of a lot of them I knew, but I, I stumbled across quite a few that I hadn't, so I bookmarked them and thank God for the Gutenberg Library online. Because a lot of that stuff, you know, people in the eighteen hundreds they wrote those things for magazines.
2: Yeah, yeah come out did um did any like the famous victorian ghost writers like like lovecraft is, i don't know if he ever hp lovecraft ever wrote a christmas story
3: see i didn't see lovecraft but uh, one of them is between the lights by ef benson but probably the mo- the um there's two that are super famous jh riddles a strange christmas game And then Smee by A.M. Burridge, who he was a big horror writer, and that was from, like, 1931. And that's about, I mean, the name of the story is Smee, and it's about playing hide-and-seek, where when you sneak up on the person that's hiding, you say, you know, you say, it's me.
2: Oh. (laughs) Pierre Pam.
3: Yes. Smee. Smee. There's some really cool lists online and some places that some of them are kind of. Uh, there were a few that were hard to actually track down, but
2: so no one thought to put this in an anthology.
3: I did see a few, but they were older. There's definitely like an old Victorian Christmas ghost story one that I saw that popped up, but it's not anything that's been done anytime recently. And here's the thing. As we kind of walk into talking about your book, you can feel it, can't you? You can feel Americans grasping some of the older world traditions, yes?
2: Yes, some. Generally, yes. Like sometimes I see there's things that like are on, yeah, the older stuff. Then, like, you see, you're watching TV, you see the great Christmas light fight, and you're like, oh, they're totally missing it. Right. And then you see, like, a very subtle little commercial, little, subtle little Christmas commercials. Often, for, the ones for cars are good. And, like, oh, yes, they've got it.
3: Yeah, and they did, well, I mean, Krampus is really becoming a thing.
2: Krampus is so over the top, though. I'm not a Krampus fan. You're not. He's just, like, so in-your-face. I had a friend who, she was traumatized because, apparently, like, there's now a whole slew of Krampus movies out there. And she thought she was getting one that, like, you know, that was, like, a decent sort of movie, but instead she picked the wrong one from Netflix or wherever it was, and it was just, like, thinly veiled porn. Oh, my. And, um... Yeah, Krampus in the wrong hands. I just, yeah. I mean, I guess Krampus on its own. I've seen some old postcards with Krampus.
4: Right, right. He's
2: treated it's more fun. Like there's one where there's this um, from the 20s. There's this very pretty girl. And she's dressed up as Krampus. It's like, hey, look, I'm Krampus. Right. Um.
3: Krampus- yeah, we actually last year we talked to a guy who um, he. Uh, put together a book called Contemporary Krampus, and it was in the vein of the old um, postcards, but he commissioned like 25 current day artists to portray Krampus. I mean, there was a movie that was put out right after the good Krampus movie that came out last year, which I did think was good. It's in the vein of Gremlins, so it's kind of funny. Everything that's in it is done with puppetry. It's not, you know, CGI over the top. Oh, I like puppetry. And yeah, it's it's actually and it's got a real like the five minutes in the middle where the old German grandmother is telling her story of Krampus. It's um it's done with art drawings. Oh,
2: and, I have to, I have seen a clip of that.
3: Yeah, it and that's real that's really good. And so I do, I totally get what you're saying. Yeah, Krampus is over the top. Because I do think people just kind of, like you said, they just turn it into, I mean, I don't know, bestiality or some
2: such. If you're a little kid, you know, Krampus is scary as hell. But for the grown-up, it's kind of funny.
3: Yeah, and I thought it was interesting that, and I was talking about your book the other day, that the idea of Halloween comes from the bells, nickel.
2: They did go trick or treating, but they never went. Um, bells, nickels were always Christmas, though.
3: Right, but it was- but it did kind of as the as the holiday evolved, the idea of getting together and kind of causing mischief just kind of morphed into what would become present-day halloween
2: yeah the whole it's all like it's all mixed up and it at one like in new york they used to go trick-or-treating on thanksgiving now that's and real strange was that that's why they started the macy's thanksgiving parade because these city kids were wandering around causing trouble making mischief and demanding stuff on Thanksgiving, so let's give them a parade to go and watch, and they'll stay out of trouble. So, of course, all the kids went to the parade, but they're like, okay, well, we'll just do our trick-or-treating earlier on Halloween, because there are probably maybe some Irish kids doing that already. But it's... um, Yeah, when you try to pin these traditions down, it can be very elusive. And then then almost sometimes it seems like they're doing the same thing at every holiday. Every holiday... They're keeping dark spirits at bay, and they're dressing up, and they're going from door to door and asking for treats and making mischief.
3: It's a really good depiction of America, because we're talking about all these different cultures getting off the boats Mm -hmm. and mixing together.
2: And And it's mostly the kids, because who's going to mix it up? It's the kids who are going to mix it up.
3: Right, because the parents are going to stay with their older traditions.
2: and the kids are going to go over the fence and you know, hey, what are you doing over there? Hey, I can, I want to do that too. You know, like I remember I wanted to even, I think there were only like maybe four Jewish kids in my school when I was growing up. And I was like, I want to celebrate Hanukkah. I'm jealous. We don't have a menorah. You know?
3: <laughs> I, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. And I definitely knew a lot of Jewish kids that were jealous of Christmas.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and my my eleven year old she has a friend who who doesn't celebrate Christmas so she makes her up like a bag of Christmas chocolate and, and stuff and gives her that every year Um, so she can have like Christmas in her bedroom.
3: Aww, <laughs> that's very sweet. Well, we mentioned that it was Saint Lucy's Eve, and I wanted to ask you. I'm a big fan of language, and kind of how we develop the words that we use today. And I saw something really interesting in your book in a footnote that had to do with Lucy. Can you explain to the people just what, who Lucia is?
2: So, well, she's one of those things that I thought at first, this has got to be a really old tradition because she's um, more, most associated with Sweden, but they do it also to, to, in Denmark and in Norway. Um, and Finland she's a girl you know a human girl sometimes you have one in the household you'll have one in schools you'll have one in like corporations they'll bring one in and she dresses in a long white sort of nightgowny dress she wears a red sash and a crown of live candles and she walks around handing out these um saffron buns called it translates exactly as literally as Lucy Cats, but they're they're not cat shaped, they're actually these, these round spiral buns, that sweet saffron buns. And she appears on the early, early mornings, the early, early hours of December thirteenth. That's the Saint Day of Saint Lucy who was who was Italian and you know, she was one of those didn't want to get married, you know, so she uh Gouged her own eyes out so she would be unattractive to suitors and she could just remain the bride of Christ. But anyway, so that's the Italian excuse for having the festival. And that used in the old calendar, the winter solstice fell on December 13th. So you think you've got so, you know, she's got the crown of candles, it's solar, Um, she's got the white nightgown and a blood red sash. Maybe she's like a sacrifice to the sun. But it's actually, she's really recent. She dates only from about the, I, can't, I don't want to, I did the research for the book and now I'm forgetting, is it maybe 1700s, that's the earliest?
3: Yeah, I think you're right on that. And,
2: and she's probably like, like they. you know they have the Reformation, starting in Germany, where they... You know, people broke away from the Catholic Church to form... Martin Luther formed the Protestant Church. He didn't really mean to do that. He just, you know, like, okay, you don't like it. Make your own church. <laughs> and then after the Reformation came the Counter-Reformation, when the Catholics said, okay, we're going to... things have gotten a little out of hand and clean things up. And so you had a lot of characters coming out of that. You had Protestants not wanting to use saints so much anymore. So inventing new Christmas characters, and then you had Catholics wanting to bring more mysticism into, you know, not just material stuff, but mysticism in, so they have new characters. So, the Saint Lucy, the Lucia, with the crown of candles and the white gown, she may, it looks like she was inspired by the Germanic Christkind. Christ child, which was always played by a girl who would give out presents instead of St. Nicholas, giving out the presents because St. Nicholas is a saint, and they're trying to do away with the worship of saints.
3: Right. Okay, and now...
2: I think, yeah.
3: Okay, so we're both fans of the fantasy.
2: There is an older strain, but...
3: I want to get to the witch, for, but...
2: I knew you wanted to get to the witch, yes.
3: <laughs> but I also want to mention that I was thinking of Lucy, and it made me think of the Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe.
2: Oh, yeah, I was thinking about her a lot, uh, the White Witch throughout this
3: book. Yeah, the White Witch and little Lucy, and obviously Lucy's role in that story... Is,
2: that's right, Lucy Pevensey? her name is Lucy, and I never thought of that. Why did I never think of that?
3: That's why I'm here.
2: Thank you.
3: I've got another thing for you that I kind of think will blow your mind, but I'll share that with you in just a second.
2: Okay. Lucy brings light into Narnia.
3: Yeah, yeah. And it's really crazy that you say that Lucy brings light into Narnia because the word that I'm thinking of is the Lucy fur.
2: Yeah, you mean like the, the wild? Right. Lucy Ford was another version of the wild hunt where they just go rampaging. <coughs> these dark <coughs> spirits go rampaging through the countryside, and this Lucy might come down the chimney.
3: And that was Lucy spelled with an L U S S I. I yeah. And she was the leader, and that run, again, the idea of a run... Like the Krampus thing and the Cert and the Bellsnickel,
2: yeah.
3: The idea of her leading the charge and that was called the Lucy Fur, which blew me away. Obviously,
2: oh, because she leads the charge in Narnia,
3: and like you said, in the
2: that Lucy is a that Lucy's not considered good, right? I mean, the L U F S I.
3: I know, but again,
2: yeah.
3: She's she's the leader and the just the idea that that the the language that that when she leads the charge it's called the Luciferd. Mhm. So then you take that in the translation of Lucifer as
2: Oh. Yeah.
3: You see what I'm saying?
2: Because Lucifer means bearer of light, right?
3: Yes. <laughs> Light bringing. light bringing, Lucifer is Latin for light bringing.
2: Light bringing. Yeah, that's definitely because I think we had a lot of in the in the distant dark the past. There were characters that were both light and dark, and then later they got split into two.
3: Well, of course. I mean, that's even. It's a very Christian theme, right there. Obviously.
2: And then sometimes they come back together into one again.
3: You see where I'm going with that? That just, uh, it kind of knocked me out of my chair this morning.
2: Ah, uh, Yeah, we need more people like you reading this book. <laughs> what is it really all about?
3: Well, while I'm on a high note then, and while I've got your attention. <laughs> um, so how would you pronounce, do you pronounce her name Frau? Ahola? Ahola.
2: Oh, Hola. Yeah, holla, Like a schwa at the end. Okay. She's actually a character that I grew up with. She's one of the, the few characters in the book that I actually grew up with. It was a household word.
3: Now, what's the connection with her and the Perchata? Perchta? Perkta. Perchta. Listen to you getting
2: German on me. Yeah, that's the one thing I can do.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I think they're basically the same. You've got Bertha Per Paula and they seem to be I think that they're late the late incarnations of of the goddess the Norse goddess Frigga and then you have the added confusion that Frigga is kind of sort of the same as the goddess Freya Frigga's more, concerned with household tasks and things she's more of a matronly housewifey figure and Freya is you know the great lover sort of Aphrodite but they do cross paths and a funny thing about the uh, Lucia is those buns are called Lucy cats and Freya north goddess of love she was associated with cats she had cats pulling her her wagon across the sky and so I wonder if that's where the cats
3: from. That's interesting. Yeah. So I'm going to read from your book here for just a second. Oh, yeah.
2: I love, love when people do that. Okay.
3: Okay. So this is um, in discussion of perchta. Perchta?
2: It's like a. Well,
3: it's I- a K, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. The C. The C. H. You could just do it as a K.
2: So yeah.
3: So you were talking about how you would not want to screw around and forget to leave. Food for her. And you say, but what if you went out for beer and sausages just before the old lady arrived? Or if you cooked the right dishes but forgot to leave an extra portion warming on the stove? The consequences would not quite be the same as if you had neglected to put out cookies for Santa. For the Frau would be really horribly upset. First, she would slit open your belly with a knife she kept hidden in her skirts. Then she would reach in, pull out all of the forbidden food, replacing it with a bundle of kindling or that brick before she sewed you up again using farm implements instead of surgical instruments. She wouldn't do any of this right away. Here's the key. She wouldn't do any of this right away, but wait until you were sleeping. Okay, you go down a little bit, and you mention how Scrooge said that Marley was, quote, an undigested bit of beef, maybe a blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of underdone potato. Then you say that she likes to keep watch over the person's body while they sleep. Do you know do you know what the old hag syndrome is? No, what's the
2: old hag syndrome? Is it like a modern uh,
3: Yeah, well this is a phenomenon where people say That they wake up and they're paralyzed, like as if something's sitting on their chest. And it's called old hag syndrome because it's a thing that witches would do.
2: Yeah, like the nightmare who comes in and sits on your chest. Okay.
3: She cuts your belly open while you sleep. I just thought it was fascinating. It's a, the the idea that she's not going to mess with you right now. She's going to wait till you're asleep, yeah, and hover over you.
2: But then, did you get the did you get the to the part about on twig belly?
3: Yes, I didn't go that far in terms of the reading. I was I, I got a little bit excited with telling you that
2: because it was a, a good thing for him.
3: Yes full recoveries known as the on twig belly forever after, or at least until chapter 55 when he splits his head open while avenging the death.
2: That's the best you can hope for in North sagas. Hey, I can, I can buy you another two weeks before you get slaughtered in battle. Right. Death.
3: I just thought, and there's so many things like this with, um, the more I read of your work and I thought like your, couple of chapters on the elves were really really cool in that i agree with you that we've allowed ourselves to just look at elves in one fashion rather than the other more on the light side rather than the dark as a big fan of history and tradition and lore i was finding little Little strings that were attaching these old ancient stories to things that still, to this day, are phenomenon that we don't really understand. And one of the things that I was found really interesting, and again, you're going to have to help me with the pronunciation here. Mm-hmm. The Kalinkinsards. What the Kalingsaros. Kallikansaros?
2: Oh, uh okay, I don't speak Greek. Greek. I I've I'm saying it Kallikansaros tali, or
3: Yeah, it would be faster, I think. Floral. I did actually take Greek, so.
2: Oh, you took Greek. Oh, okay. Then I don't then you have to help me.
3: Well, I think that's how I would say it. That's the way that it looks to me is like the Kallikansaros. Almost Spanish. Okay. I think the Greeks roll it a little bit. Let's pretend that they do. Okay. <laughs> but here's the thing that I wanted to uh, to mention again um, reading your book. Uh, the Calencanzaros was a red eye and covered in black hair, overlong tongue making it as certs or Krampus's close kin. Instead of goat hooves, however, it had clubbed feet or just one foot. This didn't stop it from getting where it wanted to go, traveling in packs. These creatures snuck in by the way of the chimney to devour the Christmas dinner. But mentioning this and then also your discussion of the werewolves, it just makes me think of like the the long standing tradition of the creatures of the forest.
2: And also notice it, their feet. Yeah, something that's through like it's in Middle Eastern folklore, Eastern European folklore, Frahala um, or Perhta. They often have either one or two bird's feet. The feet are. Do you know the story of the Queen of Sheba? Um, it's not in the Bible. It's one of those I think it's in the the Zohar, um, where she's you know she's come to the court of Solomon to party and some of the courtiers suspect that she's not, that she's a djinn. She's not really human. So they put they put a glass floor down in the palace, and she's got across this glass floor to get to dinner, and she thinks it's water, so she lifts up her skirts, and they see that she's got donkey feet. Mm-hmm. And that reveals her identity, that she's actually some kind of demon. So yeah, the fact that the Calicansarois Cali- Cali- have... One foot or a club foot, and I, I I don't know yet why that is. I mean, I keep coming across it; these odd feet.
3: Yeah, I mean, Krampus with the goat feet.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, it's also interesting. It makes me think of the witch from the Blair Witch Project.
2: I haven't. I almost went to see that, and then I.
3: Oh, I'm to- talking about the old one. Yeah. The the original one when they're talking about they're actually interviewing these two guys who were saying that they were fishing and that they saw this lady down the river stream and they were both kind of like mesmerized by her and that she opened her skirt and she the guys like she had hair just all over her legs. It's like the creepiest thing. You like, you know, like mm-hmm. like she was a beast, you know. Yeah. And the other thing is, I think there's probably some sort of a connection, especially with these, I find it interesting, the female character, and I'm always interested in the way that certain cultures depict the feminine. And it is interesting that so many of these things are hidden under skirt, which gives the, the hint of. There being trouble under there, if you know what I mean.
2: Yes, there's trouble under there, but then there's also a lot of there's a lot of cross dressing in the Christmas characters.
3: Yes, well, I mean, having a girl play the Christ child is I mean, a
2: girl is... play the Christ child. Um, the oh, uh, which was it? Was it Saint Lucy's Day, where where she comes to inspect the? Oh, the there there are boys who come and inspect the housekeeping.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Give out presents and they're they're dressed as girls. And Black Peter is usually, is often played by a girl because Black Peter's supposed to be smaller than than Claus, the Dutch St. Nicholas.
3: I think it just makes perfect sense that Black Peter would be black like Ashy Claus was ashy because he went down the chimney.
2: They went down
3: the chimneys, carrying bags of ashes. I mean, so many of these characters are defined by having soot on their faces, like the girl that's, that comes to the door when you're mentioning that you know an elder sister will leave, and then she'll come to the door, and you can't really make out who it is because she's got ashes all over her face.
2: Yeah, because yeah, smearing something dark all over your face is a good way to disguise your true identity. It's a good way to make sure the kids in the family don't recognize you.
3: Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that there's definitely some times when cultures have gone over the top about the Black Peter thing, but see, I don't look at it like that.
2: I was looking at I was looking through my my world book Christmas in the Netherlands book over the weekend, which was written, I think, in the 70s. And, I mean, you look at their, their Black Peter. I don't know how many actually Black people were living in the Netherlands at the time. I mean, there were definitely some.
3: Yeah, the ones that were were playing soccer.
2: Okay. I'm
3: serious. <laughs> yeah,
2: like, well, the, but, I mean, the depiction, I mean, he's, he's Black, Black, black Blackface.
3: Right, it's a but it's a white person wearing blackface.
2: It's a white person, but I mean, it's very. It's not just a, a poke smearing, smearing of ashes. I think that you, when, when, when was it in the 1600s when the Dutch came up against Spanish, and there were Moorish people living in Spain, that just those that Moorish character fit in nicely with the Black Peter tradition. Right, But I think he was dark before that. But the thing is. It's kind of like, what, like, we used to go, when I was a kid, we would go to Germany every summer. And there were, there were like certain chocolate brands and things that had mildly racist names to them. The kind of, like, like, a, if you've ever seen the, probably actually Italian company that it was popular in Germany, the, the trademark, for the Zarati Chocolate Company was a sort of black Peter-ish looking, you know, this little black child in, in really? dress and exaggerated. It's the kind of thing that you have when you think that there are probably no black people for a 500-mile radius. Right. But when you get into a world where there's a lot of them, you know, when you have an integrated society and there are people who are going to be defended, offended, then you have to look and I wonder, I don't know, if, if, like, there are black people around, are they invited to, hey, do you want to play black theater?
3: Right. Would well, I mean, if you think about that, the Mall of America just hired their first.
2: Yeah, he's, wait, he's from Texas, right? Mm-hmm. The guy the guy who, who was he from Texas?
3: Yeah, he's Santa.
2: That, yeah, the Mall of Santa. I thought he was from Texas. I think so. Yeah, I think so, so congratulations
3: on that. I think it's awesome.
2: The kids didn't think twice.
3: No, and I also think that there's a religious contingent to the reason that it would be depicted in that way. If you think about uh, the Moors represented Islam during the Crusades. Yeah. So you take the Christian angle of the holiday... And there's your opposition. You know how you even mentioned how, like, we must be morphing into now this is post-Reformation Iceland. It's like, I just imagine you're talking about you're reading a book from the 70s in the Netherlands. Obviously, Christianity is dominating at that point. You're also looking at post-the Civil Rights Movement. I'm just saying it's like with Robin Hood, you know, the way that they depicted uh the character was that it was you know that was the way that the that was the representation of Islam.
2: Oh yeah. yeah. It was just
3: someone who was darker of skin, clearly, than the Euros. But there
2: always seems to like there is a very important figure who's part if you look at any um major scene, hmm there's Balthasar. Mm-hmm. And even though the three magi were supposed to be from Persia, which is Iran, Mm -hmm. Balthasar is always portrayed as black. Mm -hmm. So it's like there has always been a a role opened for someone with darker skin or or darker skin, and um, we don't really know why.
3: Well, and again, a Euro interpretation of a scene where everyone had darker skin.
2: Everybody outside Europe has darker skin, so yes, look how far I guess look how far this guy came. Um Right. I think in in some versions he's from Ethiopia. In one of the gospels I think he's described as Ethiopia. Yeah,
3: northern northern Africa. So
2: the, the Magi came all from Iran.
3: So speaking of the Magi, do you want to talk about Lava Fana?
2: Oh, we could talk about La Bafana. That's the one that that I thought most people had you heard of her before? I have. You had, yeah, you had. Um, even like not I only came across like in asking people one one librarian who's half Italian. She had, had in in she went to private school and there was a... they did a Christmas pageant and they had a Bafana who would pass out own from the stage. <laughs>
3: I think it's a great tradition. Again, she, in some angles of the story, the three wise men basically had to ask her for directions. Mm-hmm. And she turned down going to see the birth of Jesus and then thought better of herself but couldn't find the location.
2: Yeah, because they had already passed on. You know, she tried to catch up with them. Um, I love her because she was cleaning the house. Right. And
3: And you like to build brooms.
2: I don't build brooms very well.
3: I don't believe that. (laughs) I don't know many people who make brooms, so I'm imagining if you make your own broom, it's a pretty kick-ass broom.
2: Well, actually, I have made a pretty kick-ass broom that's made out of paper, and that'll be coming out in the Llewellyn Sabbath Almanac this summer. Oh, for real! Out of my paper broom. Yeah, it's pretty cool. You can make it out of a, a book page.
3: That would be horrific, depending on the book.
2: Yeah. Well, you just you copy page from a book.
3: Oh, okay. Yeah. That makes. The
2: footage pages from Harry Potter.
3: Oh, that makes more sense.
2: And then you can make some
3: broom. Yeah. My favorite broom in my house right now is a cinnamon broom.
2: Oh, I hate those. <laughs> Right, you, right at the door to the grocery store, and like you can't walk in without just being overcome by these cinnamon fumes.
3: You hate cinnamon.
2: I like cinnamon. If I'm if I'm gonna eat cinnamon, well,
3: mm-hmm.
2: cinnamon is overpowering cinnamon all day, and it's not. I mean, is it, I think it's artificial.
3: Like, uh, it probably is. It goes away really fast.
2: Oh, it does. I just think
3: it looks really cool.
2: Yeah, they look okay, but if they, do, I can't look at them because they just smell. Oh
3: crazy. yeah, when there's like forty of them in a bucket, yeah, that's over over the top. But once you get them in your house and you have some actual greens in there, and it kind of, okay, takes like a day and it goes away. No, I'm planning on keeping it year round. It's a perfect little old witch's broom. That's the that's the main reason why I dig it. Not that it smells a certain way, because I don't think it smells anymore. I think it was good that was gone after a day
2: oh all right
3: it's even a good thing if you just like open it from whatever packaging it's in and just leave it outside for a little bit but, but, it, but then other than that it's going to make like the perfect witch's broom for sadie to roll around on My okay. four-year-old it's like the perfect fit
2: i had a cool broom um I got it at Waterloo Village, which is no longer open in Byron Township in New Jersey. And the kind that, and and my younger daughter used to ride around on it, um, where it's it's like woven, the fibers are, you know, they're put on the broom backwards and then bent forwards, but then more um, fibers are then woven. At the head of the broom. I don't own, I don't, that one wore out. What happened to that one? I'm trying to get another one, and there's a guy who makes them, but he doesn't sell them, which is really frustrating. <laughs> we have a, a 1770s festival, and all the. I think most of them are retired physicists. These old men come, and they will display and demonstrate one that does quill work, you know, with the porcupine quills. There's the broom maker, a couple other things, but there's nothing is for sale. They're just there to show you how it was done. I
3: love that he makes them but doesn't sell them, which is really
2: frustrating. It, it, it is, it is. But you know, he's a retired physicist. He's just making them for his own personal pleasure.
3: Right. I'm a physicist. You're not. Look what I can do with a broom.
2: The the fun the, the phenomenon of the retired physicist here because we're close to uh, where what was used to be Bell Labs. Oh, ah. the map so and there's one that does Raku or there was for a long time one that did Raku pottery they get into cool stuff when they retire from physics
3: yeah I would hope so yeah I mean it'd be odd if they
2: they can't just you know
3: go be a greeter at Walmart
2: right <laughs> <laughs> yeah
3: it's a terrible job post physics career it's a terrible job, period. But that's just me. I didn't say that out loud.
2: Well, maybe for a certain kind of person, it's enjoyable.
3: Sure, sure.
2: There was one when I I was briefly. It was I can't remember if that was California or New Mexico. I think it was I think it was Santa Fe. There was a Walmart there, and they had a greeter. A greeter, which is like no, I had never seen anything like that in New Jersey. We didn't. I don't think we had a Walmart in New Jersey yet. And we certainly didn't have greeters in New Jersey stores. We're like. You know, get what you need and get out as soon as possible.
3: I can imagine <laughs> spending my t- spending time in the Northeast doesn't seem like a place where a greeter would be welcome.
2: No, no, it's not. I mean, when I first went out west, I was like, "Why is everybody so nice?"
3: I can imagine. We just we just knock you over with our kindness.
2: Uh huh. There's just too many of us here.
3: I guess. I guess that's what it is. So where do you, where would you suggest that people get your book?
2: Amazon. Okay. You can get it directly from Llewellyn, my publisher Llewellyn also.
3: Who we love. We love Llewellyn.
2: You love Llewellyn? Oh, good. Yeah, I love Llewellyn. Llewellyn has been very good to me. And, and um, I I don't have a book coming out with them. Um, but I do still write articles for them. I've got a whole slew of of um articles coming out in their you know the annual publications they do Sabbaths almanac mm-hmm. herbal almanac um, what's the other one
3: so what where would you cast yourself are you how up on the witches' chain are you
2: i'm not I'm like not on the witch's chain, no. I've noticed that, you know, there's some overlap between the books I've written and the articles I've written. Like whenever I, I read the article I put in my bio that I've written the book, um, I've never – I mean, I've gotten bad reviews for the books on Amazon, but I haven't gotten – I've never gotten any disgruntled Facebook messages – from anybody about the book, but I do get disgruntled Facebook messages from people about the articles that are in those Llewellyn annuals. Do you know those do you know that there's a folder in Facebook that if somebody who's not who has no prior Facebook relationship to you sends you a message, Facebook hides it in this folder.
3: No, I didn't know that. That's scary to me.
2: And you find it like you have to click on messages. It doesn't it doesn't get you a little give you a little number that says doesn't tell you when a new that new message come, coming. You gotta click on messages and then message requests and then filtered requests and then you find out who all doesn't like you.
3: Are you serious? <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. Now narcissistic Clint is gonna be going to his fake Facebook profile.
2: And, yeah.
3: Son of a bitch. I wish you wouldn't have told me that.
2: <laughs> I found things in there that were like four and five years old.
3: Oh, God. But I don't mean that in like a negative way. I just mean, do you consider yourself a pagan? Are you?
2: No, I'm more of a, I'm more of a secular humanist. I would make a very a secular good response
3: humanist. <laughs> I don't, because I don't know how to identify with what the heck I, I'm thinking anymore. I'm so far.
2: Well, as somebody once said, I um, can't remember who it was. It was some comedian said, like, well, when people tell them they don't believe in God, he says, well, how do you know? Did Did you go and ask him? How can you say, you know? So, like, I I flip flop. um... I would when I like when I write an article. Witches are my biggest audience, and they're they're a, a discerning audience because most of them are very well read, and they they're the only ones. It tends to be they're generally witches and pagans are the only ones who are interested in reading what I like to write, and that's why I write for Llewellyn because it gives me an audience average, normal, average people. You know, I do a, a craft fair in town every year where I sell my folded paper stars, and I this year I didn't bring any books. Usually I bring a stack of books to sell. Nobody wants the books. Not around here. It's, uh, you know, this is like suburban, you know, sort of New Jersey, but it's basically a suburb of New York um, because there's no witches and pagans around here, or hardly any. Uh, most of my... Well, it seems like most of my readers seem to be in Ohio, the ones that friend me on Facebook. I think there's a lot of witches in Ohio. Um, so where was I going with this? So I really love writing for Llewellyn because I know there's people on the other end who are going to read it. But when I write an article, and I know, like, teenagers read these, too. You know, it's teen and up, and then there's, you know, much older people, too, reading them. But, like, I would love it. So I'm really proud of an article that I wrote about the Nordic Bronze Age. And I wrote it as if it was a travel guide, like you were getting ready to go there. Here's what you need to know. And and I dealt with, you know, mostly like the rigid, religious and the spiritual mindset. Right. That time and place. And when I write it, I, I, I'm i not thinking, gee, I hope if a girl, teenage girl picks this up, that she will become a practitioner of early Nordic paganism, I'm thinking, what I'm thinking is, I'm hoping that a witchy Gothic teenager will pick this article up and read it and become an archaeologist or become an anthropologist. Right. That's that's what I, that, that would make me really happy.
3: Right. I totally agree with that statement.
2: Both two, but...
3: No, you, I... I I think that's a big reason why I'm drawn to this kind of stuff. And, I mean.
2: I basically wrote, I wrote The Old Magic of Christmas for my 13-year-old self. Because this is, like, exactly the kind of book um, that I wanted to read in my teenage years.
3: Well, I would say, even for someone who wouldn't consider themselves, if you just randomly thought of yourself as uh, a christian or whatever the coolest thing in here is like the, the idea of how to incorporate a tradition to your own christmas whatever it is that actually means something not some bullshit elf on a shelf
2: I think that the Elf on the Shelf is the scariest Christmas character of all.
3: And it's quickly becoming like the, like it's the joke of the internet right now. And
2: I met, I met the author of The Dwarf in the Drawer. Really? Yeah, there's another, there's a, a response to it called The Dwarf in the Drawer.
3: I did see, I saw like a Krampus in the Closet or something like that, you know. Mm-hmm. People are kind of coming up with this. But I'm serious, like, you not only say, hey, these are really cool markers of the holiday season that you can celebrate and incorporate them your own way. But then you also say, hey, here's, you have recipes in here for old school treats. You have crafts really intricate directions on how to make crafts with your kids and again this is stuff that matters and most people who would be here in some form or fashion this stuff is rooted i mean we're all in some way shape or form tied to these traditions you're german i'm german english but i mean there are people that are here that are they're great-great-great-great-grandparents are from Scandinavia. And you can learn stuff about why we do what we do. I think the best thing about the book that just immediately kind of slaps people in the face when they read it is when you're talking about Thor and you're talking about Thursday. Don't, m- most people
2: know that, though, don't
3: they? I don't think they do. <laughs> That's the thing. Friday and... I don't think they do.
2: When you, like, you... you love language and it just enriches your life. Yes. Where do the names of things come from? Why do we say the things that we do? It just makes life deeper and more interesting.
3: Totally. Like I told you the whole Lucy thing and Lucy fur bent me back this afternoon. I mean this evening. I'm saying this afternoon like it was was like 3 in the morning of course. That's when those kind of epiphanies come to me.
2: Yeah. Yeah they do. do.
3: But I, I love it and I really I think that what I am seeing, this is kind of what I feel, and maybe this is just the reason, this is the people that are into what I do, but I feel kind of a kickback against the over-commercialization, the oversaturation, the, hey, let's put out an elf on the shelf, let's make a book, let's make a cartoon, let's germ up a tradition. I think people are actually fighting back against that, and I think there's something to turning off the TV, turning the lights down low, turning them off completely, lighting some candles, getting around a fire, and realizing what it is about winter that makes winter the darkest time of the year.
2: Yeah, people, they don't want the commercialization. They don't want the TV. But I think, okay, things are going that way anyway. And Christmas is always, even before it was Christmas, when it was Saturnalia, it's always been a commercial thing it's always been about giving you've got to give other people gifts it used to be more you know we still have to. you know we give the teachers gifts um you give the mailman gifts unless it's a really crappy mailman like i have um it's so i mean it goes back to like the manor the old english manor house where they would open up the house on christmas to all the servants and and the, the serfs and the tenant farmers, right, and and you know here's here's food and drink. We've mistreated you all year, but here's a nice feast for you. That makes up for it,
3: right, right. But there's also an idea, though, with your book and what I think of a lot of the paganish traditions of the idea of um, paying homage to the spirits in the form of having a party where you would leave the door cracked in case the elves wanted to come in. It's a <laughs> symbolic way if you want it to be symbolic. It's a symbolic way of uh giving back to the earth. And I think that the th- <laughs> that's the beautiful thing about this time of the year is the whole idea of giving is great. It's terrific. I don't I think that the idea of giving It's just like the idea of giving thanks, though, like being thankful for someone doesn't have to be material and showing appreciation for the harvest and the greens and the earth is a gift back into itself, you know. Right. And I do think I at least I don't know, maybe I'm sentimental, but I really think that I hope that people are kind of able to steer themselves back that way. And I think that if anybody could just for a day or two say, "Hey, you know what? Screw it. We're not going to Let's just adopt St. Lucy's Day. And let's turn that into a thing."
2: Do you find it hard to adopt to actually like practice a tradition that you didn't grow up with?
3: Not if I don't think it's cool, you know? Okay. Um yeah.
2: I like I like to write about, I like to learn about, I like to write about. Um, but to actually say, okay, we're going to celebrate St. Lucy's Day and you're going to wear the candles, that would be hard. So I think the more traditions you can, uh, you know, introduce when your kids are little. Right. And then they'll carry it on.
3: Yeah, yeah. And that's the other thing is I think it's uh, it's obviously... That's what I think the bullshit with the Elf on the Shelf is. It's like trying to create a tradition out of, no, out of nothing. And tradition takes time. But there's no time like the present to start something like that. You know? Like, you can't immediately, like, fabricate it. But you need to start it at some point if you're going to start it. So I think that that's the cool thing is about, like, hey, we could take these important days, which, like, Epiphany is a day that I don't think... People who are quote-unquote Christians understand.
2: Don't take the lights down yet. It's not over yet.
3: Yeah, that's and I mean, I've been accused of, like, overdoing it because I've wanted to celebrate Christmas through the traditional 12 days.
2: I actually, when I was in high school, I had a 12th night party on January 6th.
3: I usually do it, and I'm usually the only one that's there. But I'm, I i do pay homage to it. You know, I was expressing how important it was that why would, of all days, this be the day that we didn't want to have anything up? Seems to me that the end of the cycle would be the most
2: important. But then you have to have it all down by candleness. By or, candleness.
3: or else those goblins will get in your house.
2: They will. They will. In defense of the elf on the shelf, I think he is ultimately a success story maybe not in the way it was intended because as you said he's like he's, he's a youtube phenomenon i've seen you know all the strange places you can put an elf on the shelf i've seen one frozen in a block of ice and and he will be you know like we my generation you know we can recite rudolph from beginning to end um and i'm hoping those i'm that's like that's only when when did they start in the Late 50s, early 60s, mm-hmm. Christmas, Rudolph, Frosty, Santa Claus is coming to town. That's like a major, that's a major thing. That's a major tradition.
4: Yeah.
2: And so that's that's like an American Christmas for me. It's also a largely Japanese Christmas if you watch the credits that roll.
3: <laughs> yeah, Chinese all the animation. On those.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that's a really great tradition. It troubles me now. That there's kids who haven't seen it. There's kids growing up in America who haven't
3: seen these. Right. And I totally agree with you. I think it's also a good representation of it only takes one time for a child to be, to experience the magic of something. And as long as it's with the people that she loves and that love her or him and they're happy... That's how you create a tradition. Then the next year, they're going to remember it.
2: But a lot of, a lot of things in our family, and some, somebody else that I spoke to, we have scary things
4: <laughs>
2: that have lodged in the brain, but sort of little mystical, strange things. I knew I worked with someone who grew up in the 50s, And she didn't know for years what it was. Every year on Christmas Eve, she would hear throughout the evening this just gentle, gently tinkling bell. She'd hear it, then she wouldn't hear it, then it would get louder, then it would get softer, just all the whole Christmas Eve until she went to bed. And it gave Christmas Eve this magical thing. She found out years and years later that her mother would tie a jingle bell to her petticoat under her skirt. Oh, nice! Fancy Christmas dress, yeah, yeah. Is that not the coolest thing?
3: Which that's an old tradition, right there.
2: Has do? Did other people do that? That was the only. Time? No,
3: no, no, no. Not not. That. <laughs> that's, that's, I'm thinking biblical. You know, the idea that.
2: To I don't. I mean, I don't think this 1950s housewife was thinking about keeping evil spirits at bay. She was just like, "Let me do this cool thing." Yeah. And, and, you know, and this this woman remembered it years and years later.
3: But that's part of it. That's the thing that, see, to me, that doesn't necessarily sound scary. It sounds magical or mysterious. Magical.
2: Mystical. Something is going on mm-hmm. that you don't understand. And the time that you think, you think you probably heard or saw Santa, like, on his way out or on his way past, you think you got a glimpse Um, because in our family, he's always been a slightly scary guy, like a nice guy, but you know you're not supposed to meet up face-to-face with him. Yeah,
3: you better get in bed.
2: Yeah, yeah. You don't want to be here when he comes.
3: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I'm excited to think that I actually may have uh, contributed to your next round on this book. And I I think a lot of this uh, history and legend and lore is, uh, it benefits from that. You know, I think that we can.
2: It's, It's fun stuff, and I don't want it to get lost.
3: Yeah, and there's still a lot of mystery to it. You know, there's still a lot of, I wonder where this is. The connecting of the dots is always the goal to me.
2: And also, I also wanted to write this. You know, the people who hate Christmas? I'm like, oh, I hate Christmas. Mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm just going to, I'm not even going to get up on Christmas. I'm going to stay in my pajamas all day and I'm going to drink. And I'm, yeah, I hate Christmas. And I want to say, oh, you don't, you just, you just hate that Christmas. Yeah. This Christmas that they've been peddling to you. Try this Christmas.
3: Yeah. And I think you did a spectacular job with it. Well, hey, go get ready for school. I got to do the same. Yeah. And um, accept Dadis Perry's friend request and. I'll be back up here all too quickly. going to get this uh, chopped up, and uh, I'm going to have it out real soon.
2: Cool. Yeah, let me know, and I will post a link on my Facebook page, which is my only carbon footprint, my only Internet footprint. What do they call it? Digital footprint. Digital <laughs> footprint.
3: It was really awesome to get to meet you.
2: You too. It was fun.
3: Yeah, and um, I'm excited. Uh, always like to make new friends down the road. Yeah. So high five. Um,
2: and if you email me your address, I will send you a Christmas card. Because last year, I started the tradition of putting a little story in my Christmas card. Oh, Okay. If you want one.
3: Done. It's coming your way today. Cool. All right. Well, hey, we'll tell the kiddos I said hello, and uh, I'll talk to you real soon.
2: Okay. Bye-bye.
3: Bye, Linda.
0: Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at Bet MGM.